0: By the Spirit, it is. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning we're going to take a closer look at today's gospel. In order to properly understand what's going on, uh, we should realize that there's uh, two basic ways to understand the word temptation. The first, most common way, is temptation is an internal incitement towards sin. So that's the first meaning. The most common meaning of the word, but that's not the sense in which it's used in the scriptures today when we're talking about the temptation of our Lord, because that's actually impossible. The second meaning is a sense of being put to the test without any internal movement towards the object. I mean, a, a ridiculous example uh, will we'll, we'll make it somewhat clear. Imagine somebody's trying to con you to do something we don't really want to do by promising us that if we do this, this, this challenging thing, they'll give us the big reward of a, a liver and sauerkraut flavored milkshake as a reward. Well. I mean, this would not exactly be something you go, oh wow, I can't wait. You know, it'd be inside, basically not moved at all. So they can dangle this ridiculous milkshake in front of you, so to speak. Wouldn't have any internal movement towards it. Be putting to the test, but there wouldn't be any, uh, there wouldn't be any corresponding interior movement whatsoever. So for the sake of clarity, we could call that first type, the common use, uh, the interior battle type being tempted. Uh, that's what we think of typically in the common usage of the word. The second type should be called tested. It's uh, dangled in front of us, but it doesn't provoke any sort of interior movement. So today's gospel refers to the three temptations of Christ, but if we were gonna apply our usage of the words, it would be much clearer to refer to these not as the three temptations, but rather as the three tests. In other words, the word which is translated as tempt in today's gospel, Tentatorator has as its principal meaning to prove, to try to put to the test. And uh, so it's in the same sense as dangling that liver and sauerkraut flavored milkshake in front of someone. It, it, an exterior test doesn't provoke any corresponding interior movement of the person's soul towards the object. So the, although Christ our Lord could be tempted... In the sense of being tested, so he could be tested by the devil. He could not be entirely tempted in that way towards the devil or anything else. Why not? Because of who he is. He's God. It would be blasphemy to say that God could have interior motion towards any type of sin at all. So that's why Christ was only tested. He couldn't possibly, and certainly wasn't tempted in the common sense of the word by the devil or anyone else. Couldn't happen. Okay. So, what's the point? If these temptations were only external tests then, what was the point of our Lord going out to the desert to be tested by the devil then? What's the point of all that? We're gonna get into all that right now. First, we'll look at this situation from the point of view of what the devil was trying to accomplish in these three testings. And then we'll look at it from the point of view of what our Lord actually was accomplishing So, first from the point of view of what the devil was trying to accomplish, and then second from the point of view of what the devil or what our Lord actually was accomplishing. So, what was the devil trying to accomplish? Why did the devil put our Lord to the test? Because he was trying to figure out who our Lord was. He wasn't sure. He wasn't sure. St. Thomas Aquinas explains, quote, As St. Augustine says, Christ was known to the demons only so far as he willed, not as the author of eternal life, but as the cause of certain temporal effects, from which they formed a certain conjecture that Christ was the Son of God. But since they also observed in him certain signs of human frailty, they did not know for certain that he was the Son of God. Wherefore, The devil wished to tempt him. Close quote, St. Thomas of Thomas. Okay, so that's what the devil is trying to accomplish is figure out who is this? What exactly was our Lord accomplishing? Now, for the most part, to answer this question, uh, and the rest of the sermon will be uh, a loose paraphrase with some direct quotes taken from the works of Drs. Tim Gray, Edward Shee, as well as Alfred Eidershine. So to put today's gospel into context, we need to back up just a little bit and consider what had just preceded this duel in the desert between our Lord and the devil. Immediately before the scene of today's gospel, our Lord had been baptized in the river Jordan by St. John the Baptist. And as he came up out of the water, the gospel tells us that, quote, And lo, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So that's the inspired inerrant word of God. So that's what happens immediately before our Lord goes out into the desert. So we'll spend a few minutes going through a few of the important details here of our Lord's baptism, and that will bring today's episode into much clearer focus. So first off, this is all happening out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. Why would that be significant? Up until the time of our Lord, the Exodus was the most important event in the history of the Jewish people. Now let's make sure, especially for the young people, we all uh, understand what we mean when we speak of the Exodus. Remember that the people of Israel had been slaves down in Egypt. Then God sent Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he parts the Red Sea and they wander through the desert for 40 years until finally Joshua ends up leading them from the wilderness through the Jordan River. And as they lead them through the Jordan River, the Jordan River also parts and they cross over that dry riverbed and into the Promised Land. So that's the Exodus. And once we realize that up until the time of the Lord, the Exodus was the single most important event in the history of the Jewish people, then we can see why. When Saint John the Baptist called the people out into the wilderness to be baptized in the River Jordan, this was a very significant sign for the Jews. When they followed Saint John the Baptist out in the wilderness, they were ritually reacting the Exodus. They, because they, they came in, they, were, they came out to the wilderness, they were baptized in the Jordan, they passed over and re-entered into the Promised Land. So there's this ritual reacting of the Exodus. They're filled with great hope that God will once more free His people, this time not from the pagan Egyptians, but from their current pagan rulers, the Romans. There's one more reason why the Jews who had followed St. John the Baptist out of the wilderness and then richly reacted to Exodus by being baptized in and passing through the Jordan, re-entering the Promised Land. There's one more reason why these Jews were filled with such great hope that God would once more free His people from their current pagan rulers, the Romans. And the first reason here is because of the symbolism of St. John the Baptist's clothing. See, his clothing, what does it have to do with anything? Yes, his clothing. St. Matthew points out that St. John wore hairy garments bound with a leather strap. Well, so what? So what? Well, the Jews of those days were very, very familiar with the Old Testament. So they knew exactly what this clothing signified. See, the prophet Elijah, he's also known as Elias, used to wear this exact type of clothing. And as we know, the angel Gabriel had explicitly told uh, St. John's father, Zachary, that St. John would be, quote, great before the Lord, and he shall go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elias, to prepare the Lord a perfect people, close clothes. So why would the fact that St. John the Baptist dressed like the prophet Elijah be significant at all? because the Jews had been waiting for Elijah's return. And here's the important point for today. There's a lot that could be said on that, but for today. They knew that when Elijah would return, he had a very specific mission, and that he would be preparing the way for the Messiah. So when St. John the Baptist appeared in hairy garments with a leather girdle and preaching, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, close quote, the Jews saw this and they're left wondering, now hold that thought. Now notice what happened when St. John the Baptist baptized our Lord there at the River Jordan. As our Lord comes out of the water, the Gospel tells us, quote, and lo, the heavens were up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, whom I will please, close quote. Well, so what about that? Well, as we've said, the Jews of those days were very, very familiar with the Old Testament. So they would have realized exactly what this signified. See, in Hebrew, the the word for the anointed one is the Messiah. In Greek, the word is Christ. The word was often used in the Old Testament to describe the kings of the house of David who were anointed with oil when they took office. So the word Messiah is already associated with the Davidic kings. The kings were descended from King David and who were anointed with oil when they took office. And even more significantly, when the prophet Samuel had anointed David as king, the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures tell us, the Holy Spirit had come mightily upon him. And the Jews knew that. And the Jews of those days would also have realized that the term Messiah also referred to the future anointed king who would lead the new exodus and restore the Davidic kingdom. So what are they seeing when they're seeing the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan? We're seeing our Lord who is a member of the house of David. He's a direct descendant of King David being baptized and pointed out by St. John the Baptist, a prophet, who even visually symbolizes the prophet Elijah, the very same Elijah who's expected to prepare the way for the Messiah, the future anointed king who would lead the new exodus and restore the Davidic kingdom. And during this very same baptism, that's already so symbolic in regards to its ritual reenactment of exodus, we see the visible coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Lord. And the Jews of those days, understanding that visible coming of the Holy Spirit on our Lord during his baptism, would have seen that as a visible anointing as king. St. Peter speaks of this exact point in Acts chapter 10. Quote, You know the word which has been published through all Judea, for it began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus in Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. So when our Lord comes up out of the Jordan, he's just been publicly borne witness to by the voice of God the Father, by the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, by the preaching, symbolic clothing, and symbolic actions of St. John the Baptist. He's just been visibly anointed with the Holy Ghost and power as the Messianic King. Now, because of the expectations of the Jews at that time, that itself presented quite a problem. It's easy to understand once we understand what the Jews were actually expecting the Messiah to do when he came. Alfred Eiderschon, this is a Jew that converted in the 1800s, became an Anglican priest, and a professor at Oxford, summarizes the Jewish expectations of the Messiah. I quote, Under the leadership of the rabbis, all that Israel hoped for was national restoration and glory. The Messiah himself was to be only the grand instrument in attaining them. According to the general opinion of the rabbis, the Messiah would appear and destroy the hostile powers of the world, notably the Roman power. Jerusalem would, as the residence of the Messiah, become the capital of the world, and Israel would take the place of the fourth world monarchy, the Roman Empire. Ransomed Israel would now be miraculously gathered from the ends of the earth and brought back to their own land. So, the rabbinic picture of the Messianic age was of Israel's exaltation rather than of the salvation of the world. And the picture presented by the rabbis there was neither room nor occasion for a Messiah Savior, there was an absence of any deeper spiritual elements. The rabbinic ideal of the Messiah was not that of a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel, but quite the contrary. And these rabbinic misinterpretations and errors resulted in a fundamental antagonism between the rabbis and Christ. Close quotes, Alfred Irishman. So in short, the rabbis were looking for an earthly Messiah to drive out the Romans, Free them from the pagan nations. Bring those same nations into subjection. Establish a Jewish kingdom while ruling the whole earth from Jerusalem. That's the kind of Messiah the rabbis were looking for. And they still are. And keep in mind that the political situation was very interesting when our Lord showed up on the scene. The Jewish people had been ruled for some nine years by pagan world power, the Romans. They have a local pagan governor, the procreator Pontius Pilate. They do not have a Davidic king. In fact, their king is not only not descended from David, he's an Edomia. In other words, he's not even Jewish. That's Herod Agrippa. So the rabbis are expecting an earthly messiah to drive out the Romans, free them from the pagan nations, bring all those same nations into subjection under them. The messiah is supposed to establish this Jewish kingdom and rule the whole world from Jerusalem. That's what they're expecting. But instead of confronting the Romans, instead of confronting the pagan oppressors, instead of confronting the contemporary version of Pharaoh's army that the rabbis had in their mind, no sooner has our Lord been baptized and thereby identified as the Messiah, as the anointed one. No sooner has this happened than our Lord heads out into the desert to confront the devil. Not the Romans, not Herod, the non-Jewish king, but the devil. Why does our Lord immediately go out to confront the devil? Now this is important. This is really important. Why does our Lord start his public ministry confronting the devil? By studying his public ministry in a duel with the devil, our Lord shows us exactly what type of messianic king he will be. In other words, our Lord came not to fight the Romans, not to drive them out, not to establish a Jewish kingdom, not to be an earthly king ruling the whole world from Jerusalem, but to attack the very root of the problem for which the Jews are suffering and everyone else as well. As St. Augustine pointed out, we have as many masters as we have vices. We have as many masters as we have vices. A vice is a sinful habit. We have as many masters as we have vices. When we're talking about sin, we're talking about bondage. In other words, if sin were conquered, if sin were trampled underfoot, Israel and all mankind would indeed be truly free. The bondage of the Jewish people was, and unfortunately still is, much worse than iron chains, dungeons, or Roman military occupation. It's slavery to sin. The liberation our Lord came to give the Jewish people, and indeed all mankind, is liberation from sin. That's why his first battle is against sin, the sins of Israel, and indeed the sins of all mankind, and the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin. So indeed he does come to lead a new exodus, but not into an earthly land. No. Our Lord comes to break His people free, but not from Caesar or Herod. He comes to break His people free from bondage to the devil. He came to lead His followers out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, out of bondage to sin, and into the promised land of heaven. So now, with all that as a background, let's turn and look specifically at the battle with the devil in desert. In order to appreciate what our Lord is doing, we need to take a close look at three of the major trials that were suffered by the people of God during the Exodus. Now, we all know the story. The people of Israel are slaves down in Egypt. God sends Moses to Pharaoh with a message, And now Moses shall say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. I have said to thee, Let my son go. And after striking Egypt with the plagues, Moses leads them out, parts the waters of the Red Sea, and the people of Israel free. And then Israel begins wandering through the desert toward the Promised Land, a trip which took 40 years, a trip which Israel was tested and tried. To appreciate what our Lord does, we're going to now look at three of those major trials during those 40 years. The first trial. We can read about this in Exodus chapter 16. At this point, after watching the Lord strike the land of Egypt with ten plagues, after safely passing through the Red Sea with the waters piled up on either side of them, and just imagine what that must have looked like as you... And through uh, an ocean with the waters piled up on either side of him. After fleeing along this dry path on the bottom of the ocean with his great army in hot pursuit, being held back by this great, great pillar of fire and smoke that was keeping Pharaoh from catching them, after seeing their mortal enemy Pharaoh and his army completely destroyed, they're now safe in the desert. It's peace and quiet. So now they've seen all these miracles, and they're being led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day. Now they're finally free to worship the one true God in peace and freedom. So now they're full of joy and complete trust in God and reliance on His providence, right? Wrong. I read from the Word of God. And all the congregation of children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the children of Israel said to them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat over the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. Why have you brought us into this desert that you might destroy all the multitude with famine? Close quotes. Exodus 16. So they have no trust in God at all. And yet, as we all know, God sent them manna, the bread from heaven, to feed them. Second trial. We can read about this in Exodus chapter 17. Here we go again. So the people of God have now moved to another camp. Now it's really important to keep in mind they didn't just wander around and sort of randomly pick a place to bed down. They were led there by the pillar of smoke and specifically by the commandment of God himself as we read in Exodus 17 verse 1. All the congregation the sons of Israel moved on according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink, quote. Okay, so God visibly in this pillar of fire and smoke has led them to this new campsite. And in spite of all they've seen, and even though they're now being fed by this miraculous heavenly bread that falls down called manna, they commence to throw another fit. Exodus 17, verses 2 and following. Therefore the people found fault with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you find fault with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people thirsted there for water, murmured against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst?" Close quote. So God responds by having Moses give them water from a rock. And quote. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Massa means temptation or testing, and Meribah means contention. He called the, place, uh, the name place Massa and Meribah because of the fault finding of the sons of Israel and because they put the Lord to the test, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So that's the scriptures. Now keep in mind, while well, they're throne this fit, and asking, is the Lord among us or not? They're doing this it. in the presence of this giant pillar of smoke, the visible sign of God's protection and guidance. It's standing right there. While they're saying, all they have to do is turn their head. It's right there. Obviously God had led them there, and obviously He hasn't left them. The visible presence right there. Obviously, he's been feeding them with manna from heaven. It's not like God is going to let them all thirst to death. By this time, they should have learned to humbly trust God to take care of their needs. But instead, they arrogantly put God to the test by demanding that God prove He's among them by giving them water right then and there. Third trouble. We can read about this in Exodus chapter 32. It's the story of the golden calf. We all know that story. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days. The people say to Aaron, there's all this smoke, thunder, fire, lightning, rumblings. They can hear angels blaring trumpets and all that stuff. It's all going on right there. And they say to Aaron, arise, make us gods that they may go before us. And Aaron built a pagan idol, the golden calf. It's a statue of Apis. That's actually the Egyptian bull god of fertility and strength. And then they promptly commit the sin of idolatry by worshiping. Okay, so the Lord God has just saved them from the satanic kingdom of Egypt and all the horrific demonic activity and idol worship of the Egyptians. And so what do they do? They get together, they build a statue of a demon and worship it. All these miracles, the parting, the Red Sea, the pillar of fire and smoke, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, etc., etc., and they go ahead and they build a statue of an Egyptian demon and they worship it. Okay. So, we've taken a quick look at three of the great trials of the Exodus. The first trial was that of Israel doubting that God would provide food for them in the desert. The second trial was that of Israel putting the Lord God to the test at Massa by asking, Is the Lord among us or not? with a pillar of smoke standing right there at the camp. And these little pipsqueaks have the arrogance to demand that Almighty God prove that He's among them by giving them water right here and right now. The third trial is the test of idolatry when Israel worships the golden calf. Now, let's take all that and apply it to the gospel today. Throughout Jewish history, the king is regarded as an embodiment of the whole nation. What happened to the king could be said to have happened to the people as a whole. So when the king is faithful to the covenant, then the entire nation receives the blessing of God. When sin is on the throne, then the whole nation suffers. The king represented the people. That's still true, by the way. That's still true. So as the anointed one, Jesus would have been viewed by his Jewish followers as their representative. And as their representative, our Lord spends 40 days in the desert, symbolically reliving the 40 years of the Exodus. During his time in the wilderness, he experiences the same three trials as Israel during the Exodus, but with one huge difference. Where Israel failed, our Lord triumphs. And in the process is a great foreshadowing of his ultimate triumph on the cross. He conquers sin and defeats the devil. Let's walk through the first temptation, St. Matthew. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. The tempter coming to said to him, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Who answered and said, it's written, not in bread alone does man live, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Close quote. In our Lord's first temptation, he faces hunger in the desert. But unlike Israel, he does not waver. In response to the Lord's temptation, he quotes, or the devil's temptation, he quotes Scripture. Now, when you're reading the Bible, every time our Lord quotes Old Testament, one really good habit to get into is to go back and read that part of Scripture that our Lord just quoted from because it's important. So we'll do that. Our Lord is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is warning the people not to forget God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Close quote. So our Lord is quoting a scripture which which treats directly and specifically about the first trial of Israel in the desert. What Israel had failed at, our Lord does perfectly. Second temptation, St. Matthew. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written that he has given his angels charge over thee, and in their hands shall they bear thee up, lest perhaps thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Close quote. In this case, the devil is trying to get our Lord to put God to the test, to prove he means what he says. Notice the devil actually quotes scripture here. And in this case, our Lord responds by quoting part of Deuteronomy 6.16. Moses has just told the people they should love the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their might. And then in verse 16, Moses says, quote, You shall not tempt the Lord thy God, as you tested him at Massah, close quote. So our Lord quoted a scripture which refers directly to the second great failing of Israel in the desert. When Israel put uh, the Lord to the test at Massa by demanding, well the pillar of uh, smoke is right there, demanding Almighty God prove He's among them by giving them water right then and there. So in the second temptation, our Lord quotes that scripture and simply brushes the temptation away. Again, what Israel failed at, our Lord does perfectly. Third temptation, St. Matthew. Again the devil took him up into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said to him, All these will I give thee. If falling down, thou wilt adore me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God thou shalt adore, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Close quote. The Hadock Commentary notes that at this point, Christ does not quote the precise words of Scripture, but rather the substance of several verses. Deuteronomy 5, 7 and 9, six thirteen and ten twenty. Quote, Thou shalt not have strange gods in my sight, thou shalt not adore them, and thou shalt not serve them. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and shalt serve him only. Close quote. So the third great failing of Israel in the desert was building and worshipping the golden calf, the sin of idolatry. And in this third temptation, our Lord brushes that away again. When the devil wants him to fall down and commit idolatry by worshiping him. Again, what Israel failed at, our Lord does perfectly. So our Lord's victory over the devil sets the tone for the rest of his public ministry. For those three years, he'll travel throughout the Holy Land, freeing men from sin and the effects of sin. By healing the sick, by casting out devils and by forgiving sins. As we read in 1 John 3 for this purpose the Son of God appeared, that He might destroy the works of the devil. That's scripture. For this purpose the Son of God appeared, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Our Lord came to break His people free, not from Caesar or Herod, but from bondage to the devil. He came to lead his followers out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, out of bondage to sin and into the promised land of heaven. He's our Savior. He came to save us from the devil and sin. He came to save us from an eternity in hell. For this purpose, the Son of God appeared, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He's our Savior. He's our Savior. Let's close. During this Holy Lent, let us carefully examine our hearts to make sure we're not imitating the people of Israel. Make sure that we haven't forgotten all the marvelous things God has done for us and continues to do for us, especially by remaining really present here with us. It's so amazing. We're sinners, and yet He stays here for us. Let's make sure we've placed all our trust in Him. Make sure that we haven't put Him to the test. Make sure that we're not worshiping any false gods, pleasure, power, possessions, sex. Make especially sure we aren't worshiping the most common idol, the most common false god of our time, which is ourselves. During this Holy Lent, let's rather strive to imitate our Lord with fasting, with prayers, by resisting temptations, and to show our thankfulness to the Father for sending His Son to destroy the works of the devil.